from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Then Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So can't watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, uh, some of us here tonight feel very close to you. We've had a good week and are eager to worship you tonight. Uh, Some here in the room may feel very far from you, maybe have never come to know and love you, or at least feel far from you for some other reason. However we feel, wherever we are in relation to your son Jesus, will you draw us close to him now and see him as our beautiful Savior? We ask all this to the glory of Jesus. Amen. For our meditation tonight, we will focus on two benefits of the cross that flow to us by faith. We'll see first, that Jesus drinks the cup of death. And then second, by faith, we get to drink the cup of life. Jesus drinks the cup of death on the cross. And then by faith, we get to drink the cup of life. So first, Jesus drinks the cup of death. On the night before he was betrayed, he gave very specific directions for the feast of the Passover. And while he is celebrating that feast, he creates his own supper, the Lord's Supper, with the disciples. Following that meal, they sing a song and they go outside. And before he will ultimately be betrayed, Jesus needs to get away to pray. He needs some time praying to the Father because he knows what's about to happen is awful and will be 
and very painful. So he goes outside, he leads the disciples then to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the scripture says that Jesus was full of sorrow, even to the point of dying. This weight that was about to be placed on his shoulders brought him into a state of deep, deep sorrow. So he asks his friends then to come with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, and while he's in that garden, he asks three of them, Peter, James, and John, to go off with him to the side and to begin to pray. And he asks them to pray fervently. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the sorrow that Jesus felt in that moment, but if you've ever been admitted to a hospital as a patient and felt sick and maybe even not known why you're sick, you're laying there in a hospital room, and might be alone for a while, and you feel lonely. You you feel fearful. And what you want in that moment is for someone to come by that you know. A familiar face to come into that room and speak with you then. If you multiply that feeling of loneliness and fear by a thousand or more, that's what Jesus felt there. He wanted his close friends to be there with him, to stay awake and to pray. The scripture then says that Jesus prayed with his face to the ground. I don't know if you've ever put your face on the ground on purpose, but this is what Jesus did. The weight was so tremendous on his shoulders. He prays with his face to the ground and prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of death, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He finishes that prayer and gets up and walks over to see his disciples. And you know what they were doing. They were asleep. On the eve of the most important day in all of human history, when the Son of God asks them to stay awake, to watch and pray, they are asleep. Jesus then looks at Peter in particular and focuses on him and says, you could not stay and watch with me for one hour. Just one hour, Peter, you couldn't stay up and be with me. You need to watch and pray, Peter, not only to help me, but so that you would not enter in temptation because temptation is coming. And then Jesus adds, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Well, you know what happened that night. Peter fell asleep. Uh, He and the disciples fell asleep again after Jesus asked them to stay awake and pray. And Peter also denied even knowing Jesus three times before the sun came up the next day. Here is Peter. And it's on his confession that the church will be built, and yet he can't stay awake, and he will deny even knowing Jesus in that moment. Maybe you've seen the film Titanic. Maybe you've seen it many times. You know this giant ship that was made a little over a century ago. And when it was made, it was, of course, state-of-the-art, an enormous ship with state-of-the-art technology. The Belfast Morning News said that the ship was unsinkable. And the White Star Line, which created the ship, insisted that this ship is unsinkable. Then the captain of the ship, Edward Smith, came out and said that now that modern shipbuilding has progressed to the point that it has, he declared that there would be no more maritime disasters. No more ships would sink 
in effect. So you have these, these braggadocio, these, these, these huge proclamations being made. There's no way this ship is going down. In effect, the captain boasts, we are masters of the sea. We have figured it out. We know how to sail and get to the other side. Nothing can stop us. You know what happened in April of 1912? Uh, the ship hit a giant iceberg on its starboard side and it sank just three hours later. After the sinking, there was, of course, an investigation and it was revealed that the captain of the ship never ran any emergency drills. He didn't see the point of it. He never lowered any of the lifeboats into the water to test them. He didn't see the point of it because the ship was unsinkable. His confidence in himself and in his ship masked his weaknesses from himself. In some ways, Peter is like this captain. He says to Jesus, I will never fall away. I will always follow you. In effect, I will, I will never fall asleep on you. I will always be there for you, Jesus. And yet he denies even knowing Jesus three times before the next day. Like us, Peter is weak. He does not remain faithful that night over and over. Yet, the great story of the Bible is that Jesus is faithful. Where Peter failed... Where you and I fail, Jesus was faithful and resolute. He prays to the Father, Lord, if this can't pass unless I drink it, may your will be done. In other words, I will do it. Lord, I don't want to do it in some ways because of the suffering, but I will. Jesus asks his Father that this cup of death would pass him by. Now we read that, and we read that Jesus prayed that three times, and that may seem initially puzzling, For Jesus really was born to die. He knew that he would die. He explained this over and over to the disciples that he would be raised up on the third day. Why then these prayers? Why would he say, Lord, if this can pass me by, let it be the case? It is because that while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. He's a human being. He has all the nerve endings that you and I do. And he knows when he's up on the cross, there is no divine morphine that will be sent his way magically to blunt the pain. He will experience crushing physical pain, and he knows that it's coming. But there's a lot more to that cup of death that he drank than simply the physical suffering. There's the spiritual suffering, too, that he knows is coming, which for him is far worse. He knows that his father will turn away from him. The prophet Isaiah writes that his father would willingly crush him for your sins and for mine. More than the physical pain, it is the horror of this that causes Jesus to pray this prayer. Christ then dies on the cross, but just before dying, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani. Meaning, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me in this hour? And he feels that separation from God the Father. There's a quote there on the front of your order of worship. If you would look at that with me, it helps to explain what's happening, I think, in this, in this moment. In that second quote, John Stott says, In the darkness, however... He was absolutely alone, being now also God forsaken. 
As John Calvin put it, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. He needed to experience not only the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering too, to save us. He endures separation from his Father. Hell is separation from God. And what Jesus experienced on that cross was separation or hell in that moment. Sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed and we will say that Jesus descended into hell. This is what we're talking about. He experienced on the cross this separation for your sake and for mine. So let's think for a moment about what he experienced in that moment. What was in that cup that he asked to be passed along, but that he nevertheless drank every drop of? What was in that cup of death? That cup of death is a cup of justice. It is the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. It is, in effect, the immovable iceberg in our path. That cup of justice that we would drink if Jesus did not drink it on the cross. It's that iceberg that had to be moved, and Jesus did it. Scripture goes further to help us think about this cup that he drank. Scripture uh, describes this cup of death as a cup of fury, a cup of trembling and staggering. It even says that it is a cup of fire and of sulfur and a cup of a scorching wind. Just a graphic description of what he took in there. In that cup is my guilt and shame for my sins. In that cup is your guilt and shame for your sins, for all who've come to know and love Jesus. And though some sins maybe you've committed may haunt you in your memory, God has cast them as far as the east is from the west and does not remember them anymore. You may hold your sins against you, sins you committed in 1995 or 2010, maybe last year, last month, or even this week. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not hold that against you. This cup of justice that Jesus drank includes every cruel comment that we've ever uttered, every dark thought that we have cherished, every sexual sin committed, every envy and greedy thought, every grumble, every murmur, every time we've had an unthankful heart toward all of God's blessings toward us. All of that guilt and shame poured in that one cup. In effect, every time we have looked at God and said, no, not your way, my way. I know better than you. We're going to do this my way this time. All poured into that cup. God then casts the offense of our sins as far as the east is from the west, and also the memory of it as well. God buries it with Jesus's death. That is the Easter gospel, the good message. Christ on the cross then drinks the cup of death for us so that by faith we get to drink the cup of life. We get to drink the cup of life. Why is it then that we get to drink this cup of life? It is really quite simple. The scripture says that God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Why does God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit go through all of this? Because God is a God of love. Simply, he loves you. And he loves me. That's why we get to drink the cup of life, the cup of mercy, 
instead of the cup of justice. So Peter fell asleep on Jesus twice. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus then looks at Peter and the disciples and says, you will all fall away from me tonight. All of you will fall away. But then I will destroy death. And on this other side of that, I will meet you in Galilee. I will take you and meet you where you cannot go on your own. In comparison to Peter, who was unfaithful, and to us who are unfaithful, Jesus is our captain who was faithful, the captain of the ship that takes us to the other side, that moves that iceberg, that in fact destroys it. And scripture says that Jesus, our captain, even commands the wind and the waves. All obey him. And so is our captain. As he takes us and guides us along our path, he removes whatever threatens to destroy us, including our greatest enemy, that is the enemy of death. It is through the cross of Jesus that there is the death of death. The death of death. Jesus destroys spiritual death for you and I now. For all who believe in Jesus, there is instead spiritual life. And we get to live with God and his people forever. But it's not only the pushing away of death, but also the embracing of life. There is eternal life now. Eternal life has already begun for all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus. And there is then the promise of resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected bodily from his grave, so will you be too if you believe in the Lord Jesus. That promise is for us. And why do we get to enjoy all of this? Not because we've figured things out or we've done the right thing or given away a certain amount of money or been kind to our family and friends. No, simply because of who he is, that God is a God of love. How then do we take part? We know why we get to take part. It's because God is a God of love. How is it that we take part? Well, we drink the cup of life as we respond to God in repentance and belief in Jesus. And the scripture is also clear on this, that whosoever believes in Jesus will not perish but will have everlasting life. The Apostle Paul also writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The author Tim Keller puts it succinctly and I think draws a helpful comparison at the front of your order of worship. If you'll look at that third quote, he's a pastor in New York City. He says simply, God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a Savior. And so for all who admit their failure to perform, who repent and come to the Lord Jesus, the good news is then that we get to drink the cup of mercy, the cup of life. And it's not only forgiveness and eternal life, but a relationship with God the Father Son, and Holy Spirit now. Scripture says that for all who've come to faith in Jesus, we were once God's hostile enemy, but now we are a son or daughter of God. Gone from being his enemy to being in the family of God, warmly welcomed by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the Christian, there is no more condemnation, No more need to fear. There's a real real freedom from fear that comes from the gospel. 
Two years ago, uh, our family was living in Texas, and we decided to visit as many wonderful Texas cities as we could. And so we made our way to San Antonio at the Riverwalk there and visited several missions, including the mission of the Alamo, which is really quite small. It was there while touring the Alamo that I began to understand why people from Texas love Texas so much. Uh, if you've ever known anybody born and raised in Texas, you may know what I'm what I mean by that. So in getting ready to go through the Alamo, we had a couple of children's books that we looked through and would share with our daughters. And our younger daughter was three years old at the time. And as we looked through this book, I noticed that she began to ask often about the bad guys in the battle. Because the book we were looking through contrasted the good guys and the bad guys. And so when we would read this book, she would keep asking about the bad guys. And I just thought that was interesting. You know, maybe there was some allure there in the bad guys and what they did in the battle. We would explain the battle. So we come to San Antonio. We stand in line in front of the Alamo. We go through these big wooden doors. And just inside are these cabinets full of old guns and old knives and some flags. And off in the corner is this one tall man, kind of boisterous, dressed as Davy Crockett. And he's holding a long old gun and he's waving it and he's describing the battle in these graphic terms, you know. And I'm sort of drawn to that and amazed at his presentation. And all of a sudden I hear from this side over here, my left side, I hear, Daddy, Daddy, hold me, hold me. And so I reach up and and pick up Reagan, my three-year-old, and she grips onto me uh, far tighter than, than how I gripped onto her. I mean, there was a very strong grip, a very fast heartbeat in that moment, and I realize what's going on. She thinks that the bad guys are still there. So I did what you would do, held my daughter tightly, and I said, I said, Reagan, listen, the battle is over, honey. No more bad guys, okay? The battle is over. And as I'm patting her back, her grip begins to loosen a little bit. Her heartbeat begins to slow down in that moment. She calms down and we have a great day. Now I tell that story to say that for all who live in fear, the battle's over. That's the message of the cross, that the battle for eternal life is over, that the battle for significance is over. That's the good news of Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday. It's why the Apostle Paul can write elsewhere in the New Testament, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It is no more. Now we're weak. We're weak people. Even though this gospel is true, sometimes we look at our lives and we think to ourselves, but maybe I'm not forgiven. And maybe we question the gospel. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves, maybe. How could God, who is holy, infinitely holy, also forgive me if I haven't forgiven me for certain sins? Well, what we do is, according to Scripture, we look to the cross. We look at it again. We remember what happened in time and history, that Jesus drank the cup of death, and in fact, all of it, so that we get to drink the cup of life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for 
what you did 2,000 years ago through your son, Jesus, and the victory that he won. We thank you, Lord. We rejoice in that the battle is over. Would you help us to believe that again tonight and tomorrow, and especially Easter Sunday morning? pray this in Jesus' name.